What's up, Fight Fans? It is Monday, the 29th of May, 2017, and this is the Monday Morning Analyst here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. I am the host of this podcast. My name is Luke Thomas. I hope you're doing well. Um, as usual, three parts to the podcast. We sort of talk about a big overview of the weekend's action, take a look at something in particular with the assistance of multimedia in the second segment, and take a look at what's coming up ahead in the third segment. Uh, the, there are the three events of note. Really just one, but then a couple of satellite events that had some interesting things to talk about. But the main one, of course, UFC Stockholm, also known as, the nomenclature is always, of course, very, very different, UFC Fight Night 101 or UFC Fight Night Gustafsson versus Teixeira. All three names um, are perfectly valid. Okay, so this took place at the Ericsson Globe uh, in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, and, of course, was headlined by a light heavyweight contest between Alexander Gustafsson and Glover Teixeira. I do not have in front of me the uh, numbers for attendance, although I'm going to pull them up here in just a second so we can see what they were. No, I do not have them, actually. Interesting. Okay. Oh, yes. Actually, no, never mind. I do. Uh, a gate of 1.92 million with an attendance of 12,668, so a little bit less attendance than um, some previous runs that they had there. But to be expected, it wasn't the most stacked card, uh, even though it had some Swedes on there of note. Some did well, some did not. Okay, uh, in the m main event, like I mentioned before, Alexander Gustafsson defeating Glover Teixeira at 107 of the fifth round, but that fight could have been stopped well before that. There was a lot of chatter, I think, on Twitter when I went back and looked after the fact that some were concerned that this one should have been stopped after the third, maybe, you know, certainly after the fourth, and that it went out to the fifth was totally unnecessary. I think that's a fair argument. Uh, I, I wouldn't disagree with it. We have a general culture in MMA of, of letting fights go too long, and I think you could argue that this one is one of those. It's not, of those cases, this is not the most egregious one I've ever seen in my life, but yes, this one, it felt like Glover in that fifth round took some unnecessary damage that he just didn't need to, especially since he had been dropped a few times in this fight, or you know, a couple times hard anyway. So so there's that. So that's something to think about as well. There's another question that was circling around Gustafsson about his footwork. We're going to get to some of that in the second segment. I, I'm just going to say this. The footwork was not as pretty as you would see from like Mayweather, who's really good about misdirection and it wasn't as, the movement wasn't as solid as you see from, like, let's say, Jose Aldo in the Frankie Edgar rematch, where, you know, he was able to duck and turn and, and face his opponent in the blink of an eye. No, you didn't get that. So there are some criticisms to make, and there were times where he was evading a corner, and he wasn't doing it all that well, and he got clipped up for it a few times, or got lucky. A bunch of times he got lucky, uh, because Teixeira never threw a kick on the exit. And he could have lit him on fire if you, in certain scenarios if he had done that. But in any case, I went back and I watched this fight probably four or five times now, all, all four-plus rounds of it. Um, and I think some of that criticism is fair about to what extent, especially in terms of evasion, it, how was he doing it? Was he doing it properly? He was taking a lot of back steps. You know, in the boxing, they tell you, take a forward step or a side step. Don't take a back one. It's not realistic. Ultimately, you're just going to, especially if you get hurt. But nevertheless, he took a lot of those. So, um, so Tashira was able to push him back a lot. But at the same time, I think we need to have a reckoning about what footwork in MMA needs to look like. There are going to be guys who are real nimble and look like uh, almost like dancers when they're out there with their footwork. I, I actually feel like the way in which, a couple of things. Number one, the way in which Gustafson stays on the balls of his feet. You saw, for example, uh, Jack Hermanson 
you know, he fought on this card, and he had a nice win over Alex Nicholson, which we'll get to in, in a minute. But you notice when he bobs side to side, man, he really leans his weight into each leg. And this fight only won a couple of minutes, that Hermanson fight. But, you know, that's, a, that's an easy way to tie yourself out. When, when, you're, when you're switching legs like this and you're going back and forth, really your weight stays here. And the legs kind of do a little bit of back and forth. But you're not really heavily shifting side to side. Gustafson's actually pretty good about that. Uh, that's one reason why he's pretty nimble on the outside and able to move and cover a lot of distance. I think the other part is we see guys when they exit from pressure. Conor McGregor did it against Nate Diaz. They will literally run after they duck under a punch or they get out of the way. They will literally like sprint along the fence line. You've seen that now. And I think some people think it's disgraceful. And it doesn't look normal if what you're accustomed to is the four right angles of a kickboxing or boxing ring where in those scenarios, your movement has to be very sharp. Your pivoting has to be sharp. You're bobbing and you're weaving to get out of a corner. You got to be very, very careful. There's real economy of space. You don't have those concerns with the octagon. It's so wide open on the angles that you literally, once you duck a punch, you can just run. It's wide open for you. And you'll notice that he kept circling back to the center. Um, so it looks unorthodox. It looks sloppy. It looks a little Fred Flintstone-ish trying to get his car going, but it, you know, it works. It was it, not to say he did it right every time, which we're going to look at in the second segment, but, um, but yeah, like, I don't have as much of a problem with it as everyone else does. I think his movement is generally pretty good. There are obviously some things he could clean up, but, um, for MMA purposes, that kind of adapted, you know, running footwork, it, it, it can be valuable depending on who uses it and in what context. And, of course, what was the story of that fight, the uppercut, uh, which we're going to look at in the second segment. We're going to look at uh, Gustafson's uppercuts and his evasions for all the good there is, for all the bad, and something in between. So, But overall, the there was another point to this Gustafson fight that came out of it, which was everyone's like, oh, my God, is He's totally back. He's the best he's ever been. I don't know how good he is. Uh, maybe he's as good as he was in the Jones fight. Maybe he's better. I don't know that this fight definitively told us that. I think if you're drawing a conclusion that I can tell for sure Alexander Gustafson is the best we've ever seen him. I'm not saying it's not true. What I am saying is this fight alone doesn't provide definitive evidence to suggest that, I think, um, wholeheartedly. It, it might end up being true. You just don't know from observing this by itself. But here's what I will say. Number one, there was obviously a lot of positives about it. And number two, you know, this guy has been in the trenches, man. You know, 14th UFC fight, he has fought tough guys. He has had devastating losses. It doesn't look like, to me, there's any signs at all of him being shopworn. You know, he doesn't look demoralized. He doesn't look like he's gun-shy, nothing. He looks like he's ready to go. And, you know, there was a discussion about to what extent he was infrequent uh, with his activity and his ability to compete coming into this contest. I think now what you can see is that maybe there was a benefit to it. Maybe he got rested and refreshed, and and now it's paying dividends. So I'll say this. No matter whether he fights Cormier or Jones, uh, I'm excited about Alexander Gustafson. I think he looked, uh, for the most part, pretty dang good. Uh, I do believe my hunch, my hunch, because I, I don't know it, but my hunch is that he is going to be just as good as he was in that first Jones or Cormier fight. Maybe a little bit better. Well, I guess we'll end up seeing. But uh, a lot to like from this performance. Criticisms as well, but a lot to like. As for Teixeira, oof, you know, um, he's been having some rough go. He's not fighting chumps. You know, he's fighting real good guys. And he had to wrestle Jared Cannonier to win. And I don't know, at 37 or so, I would like to see him start thinking about an exit plan. Because he was always this dark horse 
that either was not in the division or when he came was on his way. And, you know, he had a shot against Jones and it just didn't go his way. And now he's starting to get hurt a little bit more than he used to. He's always been a bit of a blood and guts fighter, but um, I don't recall him getting damaged this much. And, uh, and now that it's happening a little bit later in his athletic career, it's a little bit worrisome. So obviously a tremendous, tremendous talent that he is, but... There's some questions there about how much longer he should be doing this. Uh, in the co-made event, boy, what a weird one this was. Volkan Ozdemir uh, defeating Misha Serkinov via KO at 28 seconds. Serkinov doing his thing. His combinations look good, but he charged into Ozdemir. And he was landing a little bit. Not as much as I thought he was when I, when I was watching it live. I went back and watched the replay. He did land a little bit, but some of those missed. But then he gets flat along the fence line, eats a punch behind the ear, and, and just goes down like it was nothing. Looked like the punch barely landed at all. But, you know, here's the thing. His head was pressed right up against the fence. Uh, I was having a discussion with someone else about knees to the head, and they were wondering, what's the difference if you're flat on your back and you're eating a knee versus, let's say, like what happened to Marcin Held? You or what? You know what? What? Um. You know. Um. Um. I mean, think about what. Uh, let's say uh, Ryan Bader did to uh, Ilir Latifi, right? Where they shoot in, and they and your head gets crushed against their knee. If you're shooting like that, your head can recoil. Your neck has some flex flexion in it. You can it can bend. It can absorb the impact to an extent, anyway. Uh, but if you're flat on your back like this, or in the case of, um, in the case of Serkinov, where his head is against the fence. If you get hip right there, and you have nowhere to for to for it to flex because that fence is really tight, uh, your body just absorbs all of it. You're it just you take it all. So people are like, well, the punch wasn't hard. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. Hard to tell from the, it didn't look like it was very hard. Obviously had a uh, pretty devastating effect. But but the fact that you don't see the bend of the neck at all of Serkinov makes me wonder if it was a little bit harder than we think. And hey, great win for Ozdemir, right? I mean, pretty crazy. Peter Sabota defeating Ben Saunders uh, at 229 of the second round. Man, what an improved fighter Peter Sabota is. Ridiculous how much better he's gotten. Um, ben Saunders more or less looked like himself. Certainly had a couple moments in guard where he was able to work from mission control and clear the far side arm and couldn't really get a whole lot going because Peter Sabota's ground game is pretty good. But you could at least tell that he was... Um, you know, trying to get some things going from there. He wasn't he wasn't stalling in any capacity on the ground. But in the end, you know, uh, you'll notice the the finishing sequence, I think it was four, uh, or at least three jabs, and then he switched it up. They were they were they were dueling jabs. So they went one and it would, you know, they were trying to hit each other and get off the center line at the same time. So they went one, two, I think it was the third one, and then on the end, you see, you know, look, what does Saunders do? He was getting he was in this rhythm of exchanging jabs, he gets long on the jab, and Sabota switches it up and goes with the cross and banged him out, and that's how he eventually stopped him. But there was the, the he got dropped two times in that fight, both times, uh, jab jab cross. <laughs> he just worked himself inside. Whenever you double jab, you're trying to shorten that distance. That's exactly what he did. Boom boom bang, caught him. Uh, uh, it was great. He did a really good job, and he was generally effective for the most part. Beyond that as well, great uh, ring generalship. Um, Good cardio, as I mentioned before. Good submission defense. There's a lot to like from Peter Sabota. I don't know how far he can go, but um, the the thing about his striking that stands out to me is he just looks like a guy who has. Um, I mean, yes, his striking is technical, but you can tell sometimes when somebody is really a diligent student and really listens to their teacher. He has that kind of. 
He doesn't take a lot of unnecessary risks, but he takes just enough to put himself ahead. And I always feel like that's somebody who has, and he talked about the bond with his coach, but not only a great bond, but just a good ear for that coach's uh, uh, wisdom and insight. And so um, it really has paid incredible dividends. Uh, Peter Sabota, a uh, dramatically, dramatically improved talent. Uh, Omari Akhmedov defeating Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, split decision. So 30-27 on one end, uh, 28-29 on another, and then 30-27. So these scores were weird. Um, I don't see a real strong case for Al-Hassan winning. Um, Akhmedov was just able to disrupt him with takedowns whenever he really wanted. That was the problem. It's like, there were two major problems. Three, I guess. Number one, the takedown defense of Al-Hassan just needs a lot of work. He was able to be taken down whenever uh, Akhmedov would get into trouble. That's a problem. Number two... There were two major weapons that Al-Hassan had. He had the right hand, and he had the low kick. Uh, I believe it was the lead leg outside low kick, um, which were great, especially the low kick, but he was missing a lot with the right hand. He did land a couple times, especially when he would get uh, Akhmedov up against the fence, and Akhmedov would try to retreat and cut an angle. And whenever you cut an angle, and we'll talk about this in the second segment, you know, what you're waiting for is some kind of commitment from the fighter who is cornering you, whether it's a punch or something, you want to get their weight going one way so you can go the other. And partly that's your responsibility, either to time the shot or uh, to, to fake to get them going, and then you can go the other way. Uh, and Akhmedov wasn't doing any of that. He was just trying to walk away. <laughs> you're going to get crushed doing something like that. You know, it's obviously easier said than done if you're you know getting pounded on by Al-Hassan, who I'm sure hits like a ton of bricks. But the right hand wasn't exactly landing as much as he needed it to. The low kick had some value, but it wasn't tearing him up. And... Whenever he would begin to get a little bit warmer, a little bit warmer, Akhmedov would score the takedown. So it was just a big problem for him. Uh, you can tell his cardio, I thought, was better than it needed to be, but the takedown defense was really problematic. Um, and his ability to scramble to his feet against the fence was good. Not against the fence, not quite as good. So look, the guy is still young, and he's still a very good prospect. He just has clearly now, some issues to work on. I would also say there were a couple times he did land, including like a hard body kick, on uh, Akhmedov. That dude just has an insane ability to take punishment. I think I think what Al-Hassan is often accustomed to is landing a shot, and everyone, if they don't go down, they start panicking because they feel the power, and they're like, oh, no, this is terrible. Uh, Akhmedov didn't do that because I think he just has an insane level of bearing and composure, so it just made Al Hassan's job difficult to affect change in that in that in that bout. Nordin Taleb defeating Oliver Enkamp, unanimous decision, two thirty twenty sevens, one twenty nine twenty eight. I think it's a fair call. I think I had a thirty twenty seven. I can see giving one round maybe uh, to Enkamp. Enkamp just a little bit um, couldn't deal with the forward pressure so much of Taleb. I went back and I watched. I could be wrong about this, but he mostly spung just one way. Um, he, he would spin, if you're looking above him, he would spin clockwise. Um, so I think he became a little bit predictable in that. And, and I think the other thing was, you go back to Ben Saunders. Ben Saunders was working rubber guard and then was beginning to clear things and whatnot. And there was one moment where he had, uh, end camp had an overhook from rubber guard. But a lot of what he was doing for rubber guard was just posture control. He wasn't exactly setting a whole lot up from it. Now, again, you have to give credit to Taleb, who is not just going to lay there and let you submit him. But at the same time... Um, what that told me was like it's not like whenever you see these prospects they're not like good or bad yet. I mean they I mean to to an extent they are. But what I would say with Endcamp is he's just he's still developmental. Everything is still developmental, including you know figuring out how to deal with pressure, 
Uh, he was kept trying to get knee tap takedowns. They didn't go very well. Taleb's ability to underhook and then pull someone up is vicious, man. He is very in that space, very, very physical um, with his takedown defense. I mean, he digs an underhook and then yanks hard. I mean, it's hard to get in on his hips. So you had to give him a lot of credit. Um, he was just good about finding the right boxing range, going to the body, going back upstairs, and then just sort of neutralizing everything else that end camp had. So enough forward pressure. He would he would he would fake faint to get end camp to throw and then counter him. He's doing a lot of that too. So it just looked like a more seasoned veteran beating a very talented uh, guy who still has a lot to work on. But it's not it's not like end camp looked bad. He just he just looked like this. This is the main thing about this show. I mean, there were some people who were like. Telling me this show was amazing. The show was not amazing. The main event was very, very good, uh, and there were some other good stand-up performances. But generally, what you saw from this was a lot of guys who were on their way, and they were showing flashes of brilliance. But they got a lot of things to work on. Um, so it was, it was, it was good. It was fine. It was okay. It was a little bit, maybe a little, maybe above average, uh, maybe even good, but not great. Not, not remarkable or anything like that. Um, I mean, taste can vary, but I don't really. I mean. It's not UFC 206 we're talking about here, right? Where it's like super elite high stakes and then guys really putting on, you know, world-class level performances. There was some of that, not a ton. And this is my point because you got guys like Oliver Enkamp who are is just young, very, very good, but there's just some things missing there. So credit to Talib for using some of his veteran savvy and um, really being mindful of distance, but there was Enkamp just has some work to do. Uh, Jack Hermanson just running over Alex Nicholson. The one thing that was really, really great was when he took Mount. He had a far side gift wrap, which he used to hand to his other hand and then shoved it between his legs as he took Mount. So Nicholson spung and got his hand back. But just think about this. Number one, if you're getting mounted, that's terrible. And if you're getting mounted and your hand is being driven beneath the guy in a place you don't want, that's even more terrible. So... You might get someone tweeted me. They're like, "Well, he got his hand back." Yes, he did, but he had to do extra work to get it back and then turn, and that just keeps you one step ahead at all times. If you have to do work just to get back to some kind of defensive or even neutral position, that's more time for me as the attacker to uh, solidify what I'm doing, maybe make things even worse in a different way, maybe maybe pick your poison. So yes, he got it back, but it didn't matter because Hermanson was just so far ahead of him on the ground, uh, both positionally and from a general skill level. Uh, Nicholson objected to the stoppage. I, I didn't. Pedro Munoz defeating Damian Stasiak, 30-27 and 229-28. Pedro Munoz and Luis Smoka are like one of the few guys who are able to threaten a guillotine and get the guy's behavior to change in an instant. So it's not that he doesn't have good wrestling, but he would threaten the guillotine, and you can see guys get their hands up right away because they don't want anything to do with Pedro Munoz's guillotine. So then he would go to the back. He would use it to help him sprawl. He would use it to help him set up his own uh, 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 clinch break strikes. Really, really good stuff from Pedro Munoz. It's, it's, I call it cheating. It's not cheating, of course. It's perfectly legal. But, I mean, he's not out-wrestling you wrestling for wrestling. He's using his incredible guillotine skills to shortcut to spaces in other control positions or other opportunities to throw more uh, you know, uh, uncontested strikes because he has one weapon, that guillotine, which is phenomenal. You recall in the Russell Doan fight, he was taken the back and then sat for that same side arm in guillotine and got it. Like he has, he has a nasty guillotine series, and 
now that he's able to both use the guillotine and use the guillotine threat to get other control positions, you can tell this is a guy who's got a lot going for him uh, in that respect. Uh, Trevor Smith defeating Chris Camozzi, 30-27, Chris Camozzi, you know, he, he's, I think he's you know, almost 20 fights deep in the UFC, something insane. And Trevor Smith looking um, like he's, you know, he's a very talented and, and um, hardworking guy. But it was just, you know, uh, a strong wrestle grappler against a more guard player grappler. And, you know, one guy just didn't have enough to, the, in this case, the guard player grappler, just didn't have enough to deal with that offensive pressure uh, from Trevor Smith. So... Joaquin Silva defeating Reza Madati. This was a crazy contest, 29-28, 28-29, and 29-28. Uh, ultimately, what you saw in the end, here's what really sort of stood out to me. Joaquin Silva needs some work, but his balance in any kind of clinch exchange. So if he has, for a 50-50 position over under, you saw, especially in that third round, Madati going for takedown, for takedown, for takedown. And in the middle of the takedown, he would get reversed, and then Silva would land on top, and then Madati has to scramble more to get out of it, or you know, lay there and catch his breath for a second. That's because the balance and the core strength of Silva is no joke. That's that's how that happens. Um, Fedor used to be really good at that in his prime. Um, guys would clinch up with him and they would go for a trip and he would reverse them right in the middle because his balance was ridiculous. And you saw that from Joaquin Silva. Pretty impressive. Uh, Boyan Velikovic defeating Nico Musoki. This was a fairly, uh, not, not a bad fight, but just sort of... Uh, it was it was had a lot of parody without either guy able to really take any kind of edge on the other one before Velikovic uh, scored a uh, a great shot put Musoki on um, roller skates and then closed the show right before the the fight ended and then of course dedicated his win to uh, the victims of Manchester so class performance uh, and again not, it's, this, this was this, like, not the whole card but there's a lot of fights on this card like this where it was parody the guys are good but they had a trouble standing out because the other guy was kind of good. Um, they were working on some things, they were showing some improvements, but there were still some lingering issues, and this was one of those. I mean, I thought Musoki was on his way to winning this contest, and then Velikovic just scored a big punch, and that was all she wrote. Uh, Darren Till, he looked good, defeating Jessen Ayari, a unanimous decision, uh, two 30-27s and one 29-27. Kind of faded a little bit in that third round, and there were some arguments that commentator Dan Hardy made about that style of the lean back, which you saw, by the way, from Nordin Taleb as well, you know, to get a, uh, that sort of Thai style of plant your feet and then lean to get out of things and how that can be problematic when you go up against somebody who can really switch stances and, and put three-punch combinations together. But that wasn't Ayari, and, and I thought what Till was able to do was, number one, um, great command of range, good, good pressure, but really it was the ability to land the, the cross off of angles. His ability to just turn into a matador, create an angle, pop Ayari, pop him again as he tried to move out. Brilliant stuff, man. He was pivoting right. He had just the right amount of space. He had uh, the, the rock back. The guy throws a punch, you get out of it, and you throw one of your own before he can finish recoiling. He had a lot of that. It was really, really impressive stuff until there's still some finishing issues that he needs to work on, uh, and there are, I think, some gas tank issues. Not that he gassed terribly. Again, that's what I'm saying. It wasn't terrible that he gassed. But if he can improve it just a little bit, just a little bit, um, he will be able to really exert heavy pressure late in those rounds where you know he's got a lot of skill differential up front. If he can maintain that skill differential while everyone else fades and he doesn't, you know, he'll, there's some big things in store for him. And then Demir uh, Hadzovic uh, defeating Marcin Held. Poor Marcin Held, man. His career in the UFC just not representative of how talented he is. Really hasn't been able to get going. He was winning this fight cleanly. He was... Um, 
in the first round he was able to get a takedown, and in the second round it was off of like um, mostly from strikes, you know, catch a kick, take him to the ground. And from there he was just, you know, vastly superior on the ground. Couldn't finish. Credit to Hadzovich. But then commentator Dan Hardy, again, at the beginning of the fight, go back and listen to the first 30 seconds of the fight. He says, man, watch out for the lead knee. He goes, watch out for the rear teep. Watch out for the lead knee of Hadzovich. He uses it all the time in a variety of contexts, one of which is that if you rush into him for a takedown, you level change, he'll tear you up. And it wasn't like a normal knee pound double. Uh, it was trying to do an MNRI roll. But those MNRI rolls, they come from far outside a lot of times. And guys go for them from far distances. And they don't really set them up. They're, they're, they're hard to set up given how you have to kind of go to your shoulders slash back. And uh, he paid for it, man. Hadzovich just crushed him with it and put him out with one more shot. I mean, incredible knee. That knee he has is vicious. But you got to feel bad for Marcin Held, man. You know, it's, it's win or lose. I'm not rooting for the guy or not rooting against the guy or rooting against the guy. I don't have a rooting interest in that sense, but you know, you want to see someone show what they're capable of, and I just don't feel like he's had a chance to do that in the UFC, and or he's had a chance rather, you know, he really has, but he hasn't done it, and it's just unfortunate, you know. A um, couple other uh, who bonuses: Fire the Night Gustafson versus Teixeira, uh, and then Performance of the Night Velikovic and Hadzovic. That's interesting. Uh, Sabota I thought would have been a better candidate for a submission or for a. Uh, for a bonus. Uh, also, I'd give the card about B-ish, somewhere in there. But, you know, taste will vary, I suppose. Uh, okay, very quickly. Um, at one championship dynasty of heroes on Friday at the Singapore Indoor Stadium. I'm not going to go through all these, just a couple of them. Um, quickly, Angela Lee defeating Estela Nunez via Anaconda Choke in the second round. Just controlled her the whole time. The finish was kind of weird. The choke itself was fine and the gator roll was fine. But she was using, like, the chest to compress the neck a little bit, which was kind of weird. And then she hooked the bottom leg rather than the top. But it didn't matter. She was still able to get the crunch that she needed to close the show. So, nice win by her. Ben Askren absolutely rolling over uh, Agalon Thangalopani. 220 of the first round via arm triangle. I mean, it was like it was nothing. And then Gary Tonin defeating Shinya Aoki in a grappling match. Via heel hook at 747. This one to me was, uh, I mean, for Aoki to beat Tonin, it would require Tonin to make a significant lapse in judgment. He's a vastly, vastly superior grappler. And one of the things you notice from him, the whole Dan and her death squad guys do this. He had control of both legs. Now, at the very end, he'll go from one leg to the other. You know, he'll switch the attacks, but he'll try to wrap up both or wrap up one and then put a blocking mechanism on the other. He's always looking to control both legs. Uh, whenever he goes for leg locks. If you just control one, especially in MMA, you're going to have a big problem with that. It's a real big key to what the Dan Hurd Death Squad guys do, and including you know Eddie Cummins and, and um, Gordon Ryan, Nikki Ryan, all those guys that are real good about, yes, we're attacking this ankle, but we might threaten this and control us at the same time. We might attack this and then control that far leg at the same time. They're always working to control both legs or the hips in some kind of much more complete capacity. And you see that here, he has both of them uh, going, he has both of them controlled going for the bottom one, and then I think lets it go and goes for the top one. I have to go review the tape. But in any case, at the very last second, he did not have control of both, but he did have a blocking mechanism on the far side one. That's what I mean. That's what I mean when I'm talking about that. So watch how Gary Tonin does things. He doesn't just go for one leg on one heel hook. That's old school stuff. You have to control the other one now. And he's really, really good about that. And then lastly, of course, KSW, 39. Uh, they put like, what, 60,000 some odd people in a stadium 
Uh, Mohamed Kaladov got a win, and then Marius Pujanowski got a win. And I know this is not MMA-related, but uh, Eddie Hall, the strongman, there's somewhat a controversial thing here, but um, you guys know I'm big into powerlifting. Eddie Hall got a win and won World's Strongest Man 2017. There's, a, there's, there's controversy because of the Viking lift, which he for Eddie Hall to win, Eddie Hall has always been the king of the deadlift, but he's in an era where there's an all-time great in the American Brian Shaw, who's like a three-time winner. I think this is going for his fourth time. And then the guy who's been consistently in his shadow the whole time is the mountain, Hap Thor uh, Bjornsson. And um, and Shaw actually got third this time. So Thor, it was down to Thor and Eddie. Uh, the Europeans do really quite well at, at Strongman. And uh, uh, Eddie wound up winning, again, somewhat controversially because of the way the last push on the on the last uh, rep on the Viking press was counted. But if you've never seen the documentary on Netflix about Eddie Hall, go check it out. That is an incredible, incredible feat that he was able to, uh, to uh, achieve. All right. I know it's not MMA. I just wanted to say it because I'm a big fan of Eddie Hall. And Okay. Let's do this. Let's take a, well, not a break, but let's transition to the second part of this podcast. Let's look at exactly how the uppercuts worked for Alexander Gustafson and then some of the evasion issues that went well, but on some that didn't go so well. Just some things to pay attention to in grading this overall performance. Let's do that now. All right. Alexander Gustafson and his use of uppercuts were pretty incredible, and those went really well. And as I mentioned in the first segment, I think some of the criticism of his uh, evasions from the corner are really misplaced. I think some of them are fair, and you'll see in the course of these slides that there are a couple times he really doesn't do a great job of it. But a lot of times he does a perfectly admirable one. So this is going to be about both, both the greatness of his uppercuts and then some of the you know mixed, I would say, work when it came to evading. But a couple things I want to point out on the good side. Number one... I can't show you all the relevant things because to understand the uppercuts, you have to understand that, and Dan Hardy made a good point of this. He said there was no tell. There's a tell early on, but he basically gets rid of it. And what you end up seeing is that, you know, Gustafson switches stances. He gets caught a little bit when he switches stances. But, you know, he's going side to side. He's going this way. He's going that way. He's really doing a good job of changing direction. Uh, But the big thing is that he's really sort of setting up the range with his left predominantly, and I don't think that Teixeira was able to tell if a straight was coming, if a hook was coming, or an uppercut. He was really, really confused. One, because he had camouflaged it, Gustafson did, and the other part was the hand speed. You've got to understand something about the uppercut, and this is true both of the lead and the rear hand. The lead hand, most people tell you the uppercut is to raise the chin so the the, the, the rear hand could then close the show or do more damage, and that's largely true, but even with a rear hand uppercut in boxing, which I recognize that's not what this is, but in boxing, it's like a real tight, narrow, circular punch. You don't put a lot on it. Your hand does not come way down. Your elbow does not open up too much. It's nice and tight and short on the inside. And with the rear hand, it's, you know, obviously there's a little bit more of an arc to it, but it's still, you know, it's inside, like even less than the jab range. That's where the uppercut really comes to play. Gustafson doesn't do that. His is much wider, not quite this distance. You're going to see it narrow a little bit. But the point being is, I think one of the reasons why it gave Teixeira so much trouble is not merely was it camouflaged. I don't know if a straight's coming, if a hook's coming. You'll see Gustafson parries the hands in a way where it feels like or it looks like he's setting up for a hook or a straight, and then boom, he gets cracked with the uppercut. But because Gustafson's hand speed is so good, 
he can cover distance from a place where the uppercut traditionally will get you in trouble if you throw it at that distance. Guys can really, uh, you know, throw hooks around it. They can block it and then counter you if you really have a big, wide open uppercut. People think uppercuts are like the things you see in Street Fighter 2 or like that bus driver in Cleveland. I mean, that, that's not at the elite level. That's not how it works. It's a short, super tight, compact punch. You lean your weight to whatever side, your uppercut you're going to throw, you know, to, to the lead side for the lead hand uppercut, the rear for the rear side. And it's a, it's a very short punch. Not the way Gustafson uses it. And he gets away with it, I think. And I think he knows he can get away with it because of his hand speed. So let me be clear about this. I am not saying Gustafson does the uppercut wrong. What I'm saying is Gustafson knows how to tailor the uppercut for his purposes in this fight. So he takes some risks, but as you can see, they pay off really well. All right, so let's go through these slides. There's actually a point where he uses the uppercut to evade. So the two worlds intersect, but I just want to make a point about the uppercut. We see it in MMA mostly wrong, where people are really trying to extend far out. I think the truth is if you have to be able to, to disguise it and you need to be quick and that's why Gustafson gets away with it all right so let's go through these slides we're not gonna look at every single thing but just so you get an idea of how kind of he used the uppercuts and some of the issues with the evasion all right here we go so now you can see they're kind of you can see he's going in and out side to side to is sort of going a little bit trunk movement but not moving a lot of his head the, the argument that he bends his head over is true, but somewhat overblown. He gets caught kind of straight up sometimes with even a rear hand uppercut because of the speed and how much distance it can cover without Teixeira knowing it. But what you're going to see a lot from Gustafson is fakes and feints, but he's really going to wait for the forward pressure of Gustafson to catch himself, right? That's what he's really going to wait for there, all right? So you can see this is one of the first time instances. Look, look at how far away he is. I mean, in boxing, you would never, ever do this. And he misses here. I think he throws it, and it just gets off the side. He tries to get a left tick around it, and now they're over here. So we're just saying early on he's throwing it, but you can see he's not really setting it up all that well. He's super far away. Yes, his hand speed is good, so he's able to cover distance. And you can see Teixeira doesn't get out of the way, but it doesn't exactly land either, right? All right, so we keep going. About a minute later. Here we are. Let's see if I think this is an evasion issue here. Ready? Here we go. He's going to sort of lean his weight to that front leg, almost at like a side angle. Am I going to go left or am I going to go right? Remember we talked about in the first segment, what you'll see, and Mayweather is extremely good at this. He will drive his weight to one side to get you to commit, then he goes the other way. And not only that, he'll turn and pivot back into you. What you see Gustafson do is not, he doesn't really get to share to commit one way and then go the other. And he doesn't pivot. What he does do is he waits for Teixeira to throw a strike. He slips, ducks it, and then runs out. He can run out because look at how much space he has. In a boxing ring with a 90-degree angle, you've got to be very economical with your motion. In an open octagon, you, you don't really. Not, not as much. So watch this. Here you see Gustafson. He might fake this too. Throws the hand out there. Look at Teixeira. I mean, wide open up the middle because he just doesn't know what's going to come. Boom, he gets cracked with an uppercut. And look what the difference is, right? Look where he is. Foot's on this. Foot's kind of heels on the first of the two black lines. He comes out. Now he steps forward. That's when Gustafson steps forward of this logo. Boom, cracks him, right? So he waits a little bit to cover distance. Soon as he sees Teixeira take a step, he also takes a corresponding step and then just lights him up with it. Uses the first hand as some kind of a distraction or a hand trap or... Lots of different things, right? And then he follows it up with a right hook. 
All right, now around the three minutes. Here he is. You can see him going side to side. Teixeira has him behind the two black lines. That's good. But what can he really do with it, right? So he puts his hands out. Teixeira is, it looks like he's going to throw a jab. Looks like he wants to uncork the right on him and does, except he kind of just doesn't get anywhere with it. This hand is obviously in shoulders going to block that. And then you see, as he throws the left hook, Gustafsson ducks it and runs. Look at all that space he has. Everyone's like, oh, it's terrible that he's running. To me, this is not one of the, the ones you can point to and say he's doing this poorly. He is clearly, eyes is da are downfield here. He is looking, seeing what Teixeira is doing. He is getting in the way of this right hand. He saw it and read it, put it in. This acts as a blocking mechanism. He knows the left hand is going to come right behind it, gets under it. Now Teixeira's weight is planted down and hooking clockwise, so he's going to run counterclockwise as he gets out of the way. And you notice he's not turning and pivoting back in, pushing Teixeira up against the fence. I think he just didn't want to initiate contact. In boxing, oftentimes you can grab a guy and turn him. I, don't, I think he, I'm sure if he needed to do that for like MMA purposes, he could have, but he only really clinched up with him when they were in the center of the cage. You know, where he'd throw a knee and then push off. I don't think he wanted his back up against this fence, either for striking or wrestling purposes at all, right? So he gets out of here. All right, 222 of the first. Look how far apart they are, yeah? Let's see what happens. He paused with the jab, right? Sort of, what's he going to do here? And you can see the setup here. Let's see what he does. Puts it back down. Teixeira puts his hands up, right? Because he's sort of testing his reactions here. Puts it up another one, and look at this. You you think you know this is an uppercut because of the sort of the way I captured it, but it was really closer to like you know chest nipple level. Feels like a straight's coming. Boom! Look at him. Covers so much distance. Look at that huge amount of distance he covers. And look, the clock doesn't even change, man. Like lightning quick. That's how he's able to get away with it. Teixeira tries to meet him totally off. Can't get it. One fifty four. Teixeira's trying to back him up now. Let's see what happens. Teixeira's trying to find one way to, to land. He's going side to side, side to side. This time he looks like he's curving this way, sort of into us as the viewer. Puts a hand out like a hand trap. Let's see what Teixeira does. Teixeira walks into the uppercut. Boom. He waited for his forward pressure to come forward. He uses this hand trap like it looks like he's going to, you know, parry it down and throw a straight or parry it down and throw a hook. And instead, as straight up and down, this is what I mean. You don't see him really ducking. I mean, yes, his level's a little lower, but so is his. But he's not leaning over his waist. That's really not what he's doing. He's kind of straight. Doesn't matter because here he clips him nice and in tight. Nice tight uppercut you see here. And then he uses that to evade. That is a great, great. This Again, this is another one where it's like you don't want to take your eyes off the person. That part's not great necessarily. But sticking in with a hard uppercut and then immediately moving when you have that much room in the octagon, not the worst of all worlds. This is what I mean. And he's, you know. To share throws a hook, but he's nowhere close. All right, here's 139. Let's see what happens here. He throws a jab, uh, it misses, but he looks like he's going to hold it here, and he's just like in Jacek did on Andrade, posting it. He's going to post it and use that to get around the offense there of Teixeira. He just uses that as a way to keep distance. He he knows it's going to stunt whatever punch he throws here. Even if it lands, it won't land hard. And he won't be able to keep a hold of him as he uses that to post and circle out and get away like that. Smart, man. It's smart. And then you can see he throws a shot. 137, he's all the way across the cage. 113, Teixeira's really got him up against the fence now here. Not too, not too, and he kept taking back steps, you know. So he partly did this to himself. Let's see what happens here. He's going to post that hand again. And now he's going to make a break for it. Here comes the left hook. 
He's going to get away from it, but he's not He's not really looking at Teixeira. So Teixeira throws but can't land. 109, more in the center. Let's see what happens here. Oops, that one's out of order here. I apologize. Should be that, this. And you can see he gets away. All right. There's the uppercut after 112. He lands it center of the cage. Boom. Boom. He goes for a sh shot. He stuffs it. All right. That, that, not a remarkable use of it. Let's sort of keep going here. And here we have about 14 seconds left, right? Flashes the hand here. You can't quite see it. Hands come up. He doesn't know if it's going to be a hook. Look how low it is. I'm saying boxing, look at how open that arm is. Almost like he's doing a bicep curl. It would never be that way in boxing. It would be nice and super tight. But in MMA, given all the things we've already explained, he can crack him with it. And he does. And then follows it up with a left hand. By the way, he was stance switching a lot of times through combinations, pushing Teixeira backwards as he was moving in straight lines. He wasn't doing a lot of circling out at an angle. And as he would sort of um, you know, phase shift, switch stances here, he was connecting with him. Did a pretty good job of it, too. Then, boom, finishes the right over the top. All right, second round. Here we go. He's going to flash one hand in front of him. Boom, cracks him with the uppercut right underneath. So, again, understand what the problem is here. It looks like I'm just showing you a straight and then a, uh, a, or a jab and then a... Uh, an uppercut, and I am. But you have to understand, in between all of these, he's like flashing and throwing a hook over the top. So he'll do a jab hook, same side. Jab cross, jab cross hook. He's doing a lot of things, and all of a sudden, boom, the uppercut comes out of there, and they look the same. That's how he was able to get it. All the other things helped to set up the uppercut, plus the hand speed, the way he was able to do distance. And this is another one you should note. He's moving into Teixeira here. You can see he's kind of back up a little bit. Yeah, that's the first round. Second round, he's kind of back. He's going to move in here, not just merely torque his hips, but he's going to walk into him a little bit. That way he can cover the distance as well. Um, and, you know, he had to set him up with the, the left hand to get that going. All right, 404, let's see what happens. Teixeira jabs. Look at how close he was. Perfect distance management here from Gustafson. Incredible, right? He's going to post that hand. This time it's kind of on the neck and face rather than the shoulder. A little bit of neck trap area. But that's he's going to use that to get away. Teixeira, not even close. Pretty amazing. Look at that. Like Not even close. This is what I'm talking about. Like There's criticisms to make of the way he does it. A lot of these went just fine. A lot of these went just fine. All right? Here, 346. Look, he's going to hand trap. Look at this. Like He's going to parry it down. You know what I mean? To clear a lane straight forward over the top. And instead, look at him. Look at that. It looks like a, it looks like a normal parry where you're clearing this out of his face so you can pop him right in the nose. And instead, look at that. Boom. This is what I mean. This is the cleverness right here. That kind of thing. I'm going to trick you because I'm going to hold it in my right side in ways you're not going to recognize. I'm going to throw other punches that look just like it so you're not going to know. It's going to come really quickly. And on top of that, even with my left hand, I'm going to use it as a parrying uh uh, hand to make you think a different punch is coming and the uppercut comes anyway. That's what he does. Pretty, pretty remarkable stuff here. All right, 333. Let's see what's happening here. Behind the two black lines, Teixeira is going to fade in on him. There is that hand again, right? Using that left hand, keeping the right hand up, using as a post to get away. That's what he does. This time, Teixeira throws and misses. What you're going to see Teixeira do as an adjustment, and we only show one of them here. As an adjustment, you'll see Teixeira trying to grab and then punch. He lands a little bit, but barely, like nothing hardly at all. 
what you're going to see Teixeira do is he doesn't really throw any kicks on the exit, which is what really surprised me. Somebody else could have chewed up Gustafson doing that, both to the legs, to the body, or to the face. You just never know. But here's what Teixeira does. Teixeira gives up on trying to headhunt, and instead, as Gustafson begins to cut side to side, Teixeira starts ripping massive body shots, all of which land. They didn't end up slowing them down, but if I can't reach your head because you're bending over, I can still definitely hit your kidneys, I can hit your liver, your ribs, give you some rib roast or something to think about later. So credit to Teixeira for, for making that adjustment. Didn't work for him in the end, obviously, but you know, it's still a pretty, pretty cool thing to see. All right, and here he is just getting away. All right, 319, a little bit later. Look at him, stepping in. You can see hands low. You can see Teixeira is not quite sure exactly what's coming. All right, boom, pops him with the left. Steps out, Teixeira swings. He gets out of the way, but look at this one. He's close to the fence line. He's almost behind the two black lines, and uh, Gustafson's not looking at him. This one I don't like so much, and you can see, look here, boom, hits him once, all right, cracks him, and then falls up again. Didn't like this one from Gustafson. Didn't like that he never really got, look, he just never gets to share his weight to shift out of the way. He's the one shifting around, and he does duck the punch, but he turns away. He turns away at an angle where he's too far back. He needs to be able to look so he can adjust, turn, and pivot. Instead, he's just he's too far trapped. There's not enough room, right, because where can he realistically go? He can go here, here-ish, but Teixeira can cut a line that way, which he, that's a, look, look, Teixeira does not go this way. Teixeira goes that way. Watch. Look. That's the direction he goes. All the way over, past the Harley-Davidson. He moves at an angle that way. Didn't like this from Gustafson. Didn't like that he did it with that far back. Didn't like that he really didn't get a full solid commitment before he ran. Just a lot of things I didn't like. Didn't like that he wasn't looking at Teixeira. Didn't like how he didn't pivot. This is one of those instances where I think you can make a valid criticism of the way he did this. He should have had a better option in that scenario, and he didn't take it, right? So I didn't like that one. I love this one, right? Check this out. He, he, there's an earlier slide where he fakes the hands. That brings the hands out from Teixeira. Gustafson looks down and touches the knee. Bop, and then spins. And this is my favorite part about it. Spins this way. It was very John Jones-esque. Spins this way. Stays in that left-handed stance and throws a right hook. So he starts one way, spins into a shot, which is unorthodox, and then stays that way, then phase shifts, boom. Lands the uppercut, boom. Lands the right uppercut, boom. And now he's in uh, that right-handed stance, but then lands a hook over the top, and then lands a left straight, reaching, drops him, follows up. That was nice, right? So now are you throwing in spinning attacks that are unorthodox, but they land you in the opposite stance, and you just roll with it. Straightforward. Really enjoyed that from Gustafson. 154. Let's see what happens here. Throws the hands, gets the, you know, setting things up here. Let's see what he does. Throw, so this is my favorite. He throws the hands once to share a parries. So he throws another one around the gloves, right? Now he's ducking, right? If you go throw jab and then hook, same, same hand, same side, one right behind the other one. Now he's ducking and then he throws the uppercut after that. All right. Let's go 152 here. Boom. Throws it to the body, a little bit short. Yep, comes up, not quite there. 133. Here's Teixeira here's, uh, pushing it on him, in on him. Let's see what happens. He puts his hand out. This is when Teixeira goes to the body. He stops chasing. You see that? He keeps going. But Teixeira's like, I can't hit this guy's head anymore. So he crushes him to the ribs. He does this several times by the second and third, fourth rounds. All right? 
There he goes away. End of the second round. Let's see what happens here. Teixeira's closing in on him, trying to corner him. Throws one shot as Gustafson gets away. It's hard to tell if it lands. Tries to throw another one. That one partially lands. You can see not a good job of getting away. When he's behind the logo, that's a real problem. If he's on the logo or right in front of the lines, he's got a lot more real estate. When he's back here, it's much easier for Teixeira to cut the corner and be able to attack him when he's evading. So that's a not – he escapes here, but he got clipped a couple times on the way out. So not the best job there. Third round. Here we go. All right. He's going to fade. Look at Teixeira. Teixeira bites on all the feints and fakes, man. That's another big part of it. Tries to put the hand down because he knows, well, he's going to punch from the right side. But it's not like he's creating a blocking mechanism up the middle. So guess what? Bink crushes him with it, right? Teixeira thinks if I block this side, I'm not going to get countered over here. And if I do, if I do it's not going to be much. But he's not really he, he's not getting his head off the center. He's not moving a lot. He, there's really a very poor amount of head movement. There's some trunk movement, like I mentioned before, but not a lot of head movement. And so because he still stays there, he gets cracked. Boom. Throws a left hook over the top. Throws another. This is that boxing uppercut. This is what a real boxing uppercut looks like. This is the range, right? You land him with a left hook, bink, and then you steal on him with an uppercut. Look how close they are together. You see how that's less than jab range? That's a real uppercut right there. Cracks him, boom. And then finishes it off with another left hook. Vicious, vicious combo. And it drops him. Really, really great stuff there from Alexander Gustafson. All right. Two minutes later, he's getting pushed back. Let's see what happens. All right. Gustafson, excuse me, Teixeira leans to his left. What's he going to do? He throws. Gustafson slips the punch and then turns around and pivots. Pretty good job from him there. Really good job. Slipping that shot and then, and then immediately stepping through and coming around like that. All right, here we go a little bit later in the round. All right, 154, here we are. Gustafson staring him down. Let's see what happens. Here comes that hand trap again. Looks like it's going to parry it down. So that this can come straight across, right? What's he going to do instead? Bink! Uppercut City. And that was set up again by the fact that he was using that same setup to throw straights. And that the way in which he is parrying with the left-hand lead makes Teixeira think it's not going to be an uppercut. And then it ends up being an uppercut. All right, 151. Let's see. They're facing off. Right? Here comes Gus putting the hands up. Goes to the body. Now you see a little bit of forward lean from Teixeira. Boom. Crushes him. And this is a nice tight range. This is less than jab range. That's what I mean, right? Getting inside on him. But he also does it because he's timing when Glover's coming in. And he's just got an incredible amount of speed on that rear hand. So there they go. Cracks him. All right. Here we go. 104. Same thing. Hands come out. He's kind of testing the reactions here. Glover puts his hands up from the feints and the fangs. Yep. So he goes out and touches him again. Parries the shot. And this time, does it again. Parries, comes over the top with the left hook, right? Waits for the reaction. Teixeira comes and leans out. He gets out of the way. Now look at all that space. Guess what's going to happen? Bink! <laughs> it's, like a, it's almost like a rock back. I get in your face. I throw it. You attack. I lean. And then I'm going to collapse in on you on the space before you can get out of the way. Uh, Conor McGregor's good at this a little more, in a more deliberate way, but he's really, really good at this kind of thing too. All right, here we go. Now we're into the fifth round. We don't have to see this whole fight, but now you get the basic idea. All right, let's see how he closes the show. And at this point, understand, Teixeira has been battered, okay? He's probably not quite all there. All right, so here's what he does again. 
Hands come up. Let's see what happens after that, right? You can see this. All right, let's see what happens. Hands come up, right? He, he's, he's just sort of testing to share his reactions. Comes around the gloves, raises them even higher. Look at all that open space. Guess what's going to happen next? Here it comes, the pain. Boom. Cracks him hard, man. He lays in on him on this one, right? And then I believe he follows it up, right? Teixeira tries to, to, to reach out. Uh, Gustafson just cracks him with another one. You can see him pulling around the glove. I mean, he's cocking this one back. I just think Teixeira at this point doesn't, you know, can't even tell what the tells that are there. Just drills him with another one, and this is my favorite. This wobbles him. So three rear uppercuts in a row. I mean, that means that tells you that Teixeira is not moving. He's not responding. He's not gauging the situation for what it should be. He's not reading it right. You know, landing one, maybe two is great. But landing three like that just, you know, uh, seems a little bit much. But uh, all right. See how he finishes it. This is my favorite. Boom. Crushes him. All right. Slips a shot, and he's going to pivot off this front. This rear leg is going to spin to the back so he can reset the angle like that. You can see Teixeira is super hurt. He wobbles and then comes over the top when the hands are down because at this point he's really, really hurt and he collapses. So just to recap, on the good side with the uppercuts, you can see that they were quick. They were accurate. They were set up because they looked a lot like the setup on the right side for a straight or a hook. On the left side, he would parry it in a way that would tell you that a straight oral hook is going to come, and he would throw the uppercut instead. He used the uppercut against Teixeira's movement when he came into him. Sometimes he was able to use it and then get out and evade as a consequence. It was just he's able to cover distance with hand speed, and, and so he's able to throw these more often from different distances. And because he does all those other tricks I just mentioned, Glover Teixeira had a really hard time. Plus, Glover sometimes leaned down, not as much as people say he does, but he didn't use a lot of head movement either. You could tell they had read him correctly. They had the right game plan for him. It was great. On the mixed side of things in terms of evasion, on the good side, I think a lot of things you can say about the good things he was doing when he was at least on the logo or around the black lines, when he had a lot of space to maneuver himself out of it, when he properly timed one of the weight commitments to Glover Teixeira and slipping it or getting under it and then running out, that's fine. But a couple times he got pressed up against here and he paid for it a little bit. Um, didn't do everything he was supposed to. Didn't really get Teixeira to commit his weight before making that movement. Didn't keep his eyes on him and didn't have a lot of real estate. So that a bit more of a mixed bag. But what can we say generally? Generally, to me, this was a very strong, very strong performance from Alexander Gustafson, and I can't wait to see if he fights Daniel Cormier or John Jones next, because either one of those is going to be incredible. And last but certainly not least, let's take a look at the action about what's coming up in the week ahead. The big one is here, well, the semi-big one anyway. UFC 212 is going to be on Saturday. This takes place at the, forgive my pronunciation, the Jeunesse uh, Arena? I don't know. On June 3rd in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, or Rio, I believe is how it's properly pronounced, but don't hold me to that. In the main card, this is your pay-per-view card. Jose Aldo fights Max Holloway. Fights don't come much better than that, y'all. Uh, Claudia Gedalia is going to take on Karolina Kovalkiewicz. Love that contest as well. Vitor Belfort in his retirement fight against Nate Marquardt. Uh, Paulo Bohashinha is going to take on Oluwale Bangboshe. That should be fun. Eric Silva returns against Yancey Madero. So, not a star-studded main card, but a decent one for sure, but potentially even great. On your Fox Sports 1 prelim cards, four fights. Rafael Sunsell versus Marlon Moraes. 
the former World Series of Fighting Bantamweight champ, makes his UFC debut. That is a huge fight for him. Uh, Shoeface is back. Antonio Carlos Jr. taking on Eric Spicely. Should be some great jiu-jitsu in that contest. Johnny Eduardo taking on Matthew Lopez. Yuri Alcantara taking on Brian Kelleher. And then on Fight Pass, three contests. Vivian Pereira taking on Jamie Moyle. Luan Chagas taking on Judo Jim Wallhead. And then Marco Beltran taking on Divesan Alcantara. Okay, that is the big stuff. There might be some other, of course, events, some satellite events happening around the world, but that's the big one to pay attention to there. Uh, if you want to give me a like and a follow on Instagram or Facebook, it is appreciated. It's the same name, facebook.com slash News or instagram.com slash News. If you have a question, you may email me at News at gmail.com. And, of course, you can follow me, lthomasnews, on Twitter. All right, that's it for today, guys. Thank you uh, guys so much for watching. Happy Memorial Day. Please spend it uh, safely and wisely. And uh, thank you so much for watching. Until next time, enjoy the fights.